being exposed to all these interesting other places of the world from quite a young age was very inspiring as well and 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 seeing what NGOs and other others out there are doing to decrease these differences um, was a very big inspiration for me and I always thought that would be another privileged position to be in to be able to make an impact. Hi and welcome to the podcast Making an Impact. This is the podcast where all aspects of working in the global impact sector are discussed. My name is Helen Rask and I will be the host in this podcast. In this second episode, we will meet Sophie Lisker, who is the head of the program support unit at the Norwegian Refugee Council in Lebanon. Sophie will let us know what the role of programming staff is, what it's like to work in a humanitarian operation, and most importantly, why she became an aid worker in the first place. So, let's get started. Today I'm very happy and honored to have Sophie Lisker, who is the head of the program support unit at the Norwegian Refugee Council, NRC, in Lebanon. Sophie, welcome to the podcast, Making an Impact. Thank you very much. So let me start by asking what it's really like to live and work in Beirut. Beirut is an amazing city. I think often when I talk to friends or family back home, they still have this vision of Beirut as a war-torn country and a place of bombs and and, and people in distress. But it's it's been a long while since Beirut was in civil war. And currently, Lebanon is a fantastic country of, of beaches and, and nightlife and restaurants and beautiful mountains. So on a personal level, living in Beirut is really great. I know that's not what we're here to talk about. Um, so since the onset of the Syrian crisis, being a peaceful and relatively prosperous neighboring country to Syria, Lebanon has, of course, had a massive influx of Syrian refugees. And so in the, the humanitarian sector in Lebanon is also very interesting to work in and um, working with NRC in, in Lebanon. Uh, I feel that we have a great quality programming going on in Lebanon. And so working here is also extremely interesting. I think that uh, Lebanon might be one of the few places in the world in the humanitarian sector where you can actually work so close to a crisis and, and really work in a country office where you actively deliver services to vulnerable people. And you get at the same time get to live in a place that is not as stressful and uh, remote as many other of the locations where humanitarian workers find themselves are. So all in all, a great place. And what are, what is you actually doing? So my title is head of program support, uh, and I know that for many people outside NRC or outside the humanitarian world. Some of these titles aren't very self-explanatory, but to give you a bit of the background of NRC, in Lebanon we have shelter programs and we do education programs. We have a large water sanitation and hygiene program, and we also deliver legal services through our information counselling and legal assistance program. 
And of course, we have many, many colleagues who are technical specialists and who know all the technical details. So there'll be architects working in the shelter program where they are, engineers working in the WASH program, legal specialists and lawyers or educational specialists. My job as the head of program support is to work a bit more on the general side of these things and really ensure program quality, because I'm not a specialist in any of these areas. But through my work, I get to oversee some of the aspects and, and work that really ensures program quality. So in my unit, I've got the monitoring and evaluation colleagues. I've got... Um, uh, an accountability unit that is set up to ensure accountability of the programs that we do. I've got a protection colleague under me as well, or working with me to ensure that protection is streamlined and that none of the programs we do do any harm. And then a large portfolio of my work is also to work with grants and that would be all of the work with donors and, and the lifetime of all the grants that we do. Why do you become an aid worker? Um, I was very fortunate as a, as a young child. I actually grew up in West Africa, where both my parents worked in the development sector. Um, and as a girl and a Norwegian girl, I very fast realized how extremely privileged I am compared to so many other people in the world. And especially, yeah, this became very clear to me when I, when I grew up that the contradictions and, and injustices in the world are really, really, really big. And with this privilege, I also felt a sense of responsibility. Um, and I felt that having all these privileges is, is really a, a fortunate place for me to be, but I, I have to use that to do something for those less privileged. Um, and then, of course, being exposed to all these interesting other places of the world from quite a young age, was very inspiring as well and, and and seeing what NGOs and other others out there are doing to decrease these differences um, was a very big inspiration for me and I always thought that would be a, another privileged position to be in to be able to make an impact because um, that is of course yeah something that you're very privileged to be allowed to do, work on and, and to do. Uh, what would you say is the most rewarding thing about your job? I, um, when I was a child, I of course envisioned working in the humanitarian sector or the development sector as being very close to those we help. So I envisioned, you know, being the one who gets to teach children the very important life lesson that they need to survive or handing out that blanket so that they won't be cold. Um, but I think in my job, I've realized that my skills are much better used elsewhere in the system. And so my job is a lot about um, securing money, for instance, talking a lot to donors. And like I've already talked about as well, secure, making sure that our programs are high quality. Um, and I think a, a very rewarding part of my job is when we manage to have impactful projects and programs that are really high quality and also manage to showcase that to donors. And it, it is very rewarding when I discuss with donors and they appreciate and respect and are impressed by what NRC does, especially when they then end up giving us more money for future projects. That is, of course, extremely rewarding. I It is 
sometimes my job is quite computer based and I sit in an office behind a computer and I write proposals or emails and there's a lot of sitting by a desk. Um, of course, it is extremely rewarding for me to get out to the field and to see our projects and to directly see and be in touch with the beneficiaries we serve. That's unfortunately not a very big part of my job. And I also think that we have other colleagues who are better skilled to be in that end of our operations. And so I think my skills are, are best placed where I'm currently working. And I do find it very rewarding to see when NRC then is acknowledged for the, for the quality of the programmes that we deliver. And what would you say is the most challenging about your job? I think for for many aid workers, you are in a context where you see so much suffering and so much despair. And being faced with that can, can create massive stress. And I also think it creates stress on your workload because you know that your work has a direct impact on beneficiaries. Um, and you're often in a place quite far away from friends and family. And so you will be surrounded by other colleagues who are also only there for work. And you're all sitting in that compound or in that operation and office where, where work is the main thing you're there for. And then especially when you're, when you're that close to two beneficiaries who you know are living in really difficult circumstances, that can create a lot of stress. And I think, uh, yeah, having healthy outlets for that stress, making sure that you don't drown in your work and, and let the, the impact of you not submitting a good enough proposal or whatever it is, not letting that get to you and kind of remain in, in a healthy and, and constructive place where you're still able to contribute more than, yeah, being taken aback by how... how important your contributions are and and not letting that overwhelm you could you give an example on how to cope with the with the stress that you're talking about i think uh well in beirut it's a bit different as well because here of course there is a bit of a normal life right you can go out on the streets there's lots of restaurants you can go out and have a drink with friends or or do leisure activities as well when you're in a refugee camp or a compound or in a country where security situations don't permit that or there just aren't any restaurants or any bars or anywhere where you can go. Um, for me, it's always then been important to keep a bit of normalcy in my life and and um, have a rhythm of things and, and do things that I would do in my life before I was in that context as well. So making sure that I exercise, even if it's, I don't know, some kind of YouTube video that you stream and jump up and down to in your room, or if it is, for me, a silly example, just putting a face mask on and feeling that I that I am still a bit in touch with the old Sophie and that I do still have rhythms and, and a daily habit that kind of is there outside of what I am through my work. What was your best day at work so far? Uh, but yeah, there's so many um, nice things that are really rewarding about what I do. Um, 
like I said, it's very rewarding to be with refugees and, and kind of be in direct touch with them. But of course, many times when I visit the field, I'm a bit of a tourist. I don't speak their language. I can't connect on an equal balance as well. Um, so in my job as kind of writing proposals and sitting in an office and working with donors, my best day would, of course, be when I've landed a new, I don't know, 5 million USD, 10 million USD contract that I and, and my colleagues have worked very hard on. I think um, not working with NRC, but in another role that I had previously working in Ethiopia, um, I had joined a team and we were visiting um, a remote remote area in a village where women's health care was very scarce and the organization I was there with um, promoted women's health um, and did lots of promotional activities and, and, and talked about public health and we were having a session on talking about contraception with women um, and in a bit of a back moment I'd found myself with a woman and she was talking about how she would have to hide for her husband that she was taking the pill because it was very important in that culture for men to have lots of children and it would boost who you were and, and how others saw you. So it was difficult for women not to, to have kids and she had to hide that she was on the pill. And I told her about how where I'm from, it's sometimes actually the opposite because at least when I was there, some of my girlfriends back home would want kids, but their partner wasn't ready yet. And so they would hide that they'd stopped taking the pill. And so they would pretend to their husbands or partners that they were still on the pill, but in secret, they had stopped taking it. And we could laugh about that. And I, that was a very one of those rare moments where I felt that across any cultural differences or across level of, of who we are or how others see us, I managed to connect with this completely unknown woman to me across all of these barriers. And we had a moment of kind of equal communication and had a laugh. And that was a very, very rewarding moment, I remember. And that was in Ethiopia? Yes, yeah, it was. Where else have you been besides Ethiopia and, and uh, Lebanon? So I've been working with the Norwegian Refugee Council in Lebanon now and in Ethiopia, and I've also worked with the Norwegian Refugee Council in Djibouti. So I've um, spent quite some years in Africa, both with NRC, but also with other organizations, and I studied in Africa as well. And what is the most needed skill in your field of ex expertise, you would say? I think it's a lot about communication and being able to connect with people across all of these cultural differences that we find ourselves in. And that is both in terms of colleagues, but also in terms of refugees, of course, and having the, the cultural and communication skills to be able to productively communicate with others uh, and to see how you can best get whatever it is that you need out of your colleagues. Because in many cultures, you need to ask for things in a different way. And um, having those yeah, cultural skills to be able to communicate across any differences that you have, that will allow you to better work with colleagues coming from all kinds of backgrounds in a multicultural environment and a high-stress environment that the humanitarian sector is, I think is very important. 
especially in the high stress environment that we do find ourselves in. We know that we need to distribute, I don't know how many shelters before the end of the month, or there are X number of refugees that are on the border waiting to come and, and receive our services. There's high levels of stress and tension often in, in these working environments and being able to yeah, communicate with your colleagues and everyone, stakeholders around you in a respectful, understanding and constructive manner, I have found to be one of the most important skills that I see or look for in colleagues and try to also have myself and work on. Uh, your educational background is uh, health. Yeah, but yeah, I am... Um, I've ended up studying for many, many years. I didn't quite, I always knew I wanted to work in international sector, whether that was through humanitarian or developmental organizations. And so I started off with a bachelor's degree in African studies and anthropology. Then I didn't quite know what to do. So I took another bachelor degree in Arabic language and culture. And then I ended it off with a master's degree in health and development. I am fortunate to come from Norway where education is free. So, of course, that allowed me to do all of this. Um, and I think that has been an important contribution to me also being able to navigate all of these different cultures where you can find yourself in and understand what the background and context is and also understand the people that you are working with and for. I might have chosen differently had I been 18 today, but looking back, it's always it's always easy to see things you would have done differently, isn't it? Uh, but how would you say your educational background has helped you in pursuing an international career? I think it has definitely given me the analytical skills that are important. I think it has given me all that cultural competence to see and understand underlying things that are happening. Um, and also through my education, I spent a lot of semesters abroad and that allowed me, of course, to go to different countries and be able to say when I applied for a job that I actually have experience from here or from there. Nonetheless, when I was done with my studies, I, of course, found myself in the loop that I think so many other freshly graduates find themselves in where they have all this passion and all this eagerness to start working, but none of the jobs are there for people without a lot of experience. And you are in this loop of really wanting a job, but not having the experience for it. On this note then, what is your recommendation to others who want to have a similar career path as yourself and to have a global impact? I think that in-country experience is is really important because many of, of the operations that, that are yeah, in the humanitarian sector are in very different and difficult contexts. And being able to show someone who's hiring that you're able to deal with that context, that you won't get put off by, I don't know, no electricity or no access to running water and or whatever cultural differences there might be there. Being able to showcase that you can deal with that different and difficult setting, I think is very important. So if you can get any in-country experience, whether that is through your studies or just being in-country doing something, I think that's very important. I had, when I was done with my studies, I had applied for a million different jobs with the UN, with NGOs, didn't get any of them. 
And then I was lucky enough to be able to go to Ethiopia, actually, um, because I knew someone living there and I just went. And I thought, if anything, I didn't have anything to do so I could sit in their garden and drink gin tonics and, and, and have a nice time. But being in country, I soon managed to get a network and within two months I'd actually managed to get myself an internship with the UN and I had applied for so many of those online and written all the forms, written all the applications and didn't get anywhere. But when I was actually able to start knocking on doors and meeting people face to face, it was much easier to get a way in and to show who I was, show that I was positive, hardworking and could be a contributing and constructive member of the teams. So that, I think, is important to show case that you have in-country experience and perhaps also being able to meet people face to face because let's be honest for so many of these jobs in the UN and NGOs there's so many people applying and it can be really hard to show how you are different and how you stand out from that crowd. Another recommendation I would have is to just work really hard um, and take every opportunity that is offered to you. I think one of the things that have helped me as well have been all of the, the hard work and the hours that I've put in and to, to show that I can be dedicated. Um, and it's maybe not always as interesting. So an example is that I was asked a while back in a previous job whether I could help take minutes when the senior management had their meetings. And it wasn't part of my job description. And it's not necessarily very glamorous to be an assistant who... who who takes minutes in meetings and to be a secretary, but it did show that I was willing to put the extra hours in. And of course, when I got to sit in on these senior management meetings, I got a much broader understanding of the operation I was working in and what other colleagues were working with and dealing with as well. So I think that was also a very a smart move on the time for whoever offered me that opportunity. It managed to um, to yeah give me more information and bigger network for when I was growing in my career. But you said you had studied Arabic as well, uh, and I would wonder if the languages have had any impact on on your career. I think speaking French, or I've never been in the Spanish world, but um, the Spanish-speaking world, but uh, in many of the Francophone African countries, speaking French is, of course, a huge advantage. Speaking Arabic, I think, also can be an advantage, but in most of, if you work for a large organization like NRC, then, of course, the, the daily work is in English. And it's about, I guess, realizing a bit where your skills are and where you can have most of an impact. If you are a frontliner providing education or being in direct communication with refugees, of course, you need to speak Arabic. Um, but for someone like me, whose efforts and skills are perhaps better placed elsewhere in the organization, I don't know if Arabic has necessarily helped me that much. It has helped me to become a member of the teams that I work with because I can have a small chat over coffee or ask people how they are and how their families are when I catch up with colleagues and create good relationships with my teams and colleagues that way. But I'm not, I think uh, it's of course an advantage, but definitely not a prerequisite. Thank you very much, Sophie, for sharing all these good insights with us. 
Thank you, Helen, for talking to you. It was great. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you got useful advices on how to start a career in the sector. If you want more information or look for a job with NRC, check out our website www.impactpool.org. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. Thank you.